Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hi, this is John Shea of the San Francisco Chronicle, and welcome to our giant splash with a very special guest, Huey Lewis. In part two of the podcast, we dive into the new album by Huey Lewis and the News called Weather, and Huey has great stories about his music and great stories about baseball, including someone we all know who appeared on one of the album's videos, Mr. Bruce Bochy. We look back to his early inspirations in the Bay Area and his new musical, The Heart of Rock and Roll, and it seems every conversation comes back to Willie Mays. Huey, the album is seven songs, and it's weather. Now, your third album was sports in the early 80s, and you're the news, so I kind of love the complete circle here. And, um, and, and you get it, and you get it. Not everybody gets <laughs> okay. it. Okay. One of the questions I get is, why did you call the album weather? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, well, it's all killer stuff. I mean, great tracks, and it's a great time to chill and listen to these songs or go crazy sheltering, I guess, while listening to these songs. But either way, listen. Wait. It's been very well received, actually, yeah. and, and, and I think it's among our best work. And, and oddly enough, it's, um, it's, it's been especially well received in Europe, go figure. I just got back from, well, not just, but February, just before this COVID thing hit hard, I was... I, uh, toured, you know, did a promotional tour in Europe and London and Berlin and Paris, and I mean, we're in the we're in the charts in France for God's sakes, which is crazy. But um, but they they we for some reason this record's really really resonates with the European audience. Mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. kind of neat. Well, the song "Her Love Is Killing Me" just a real nice upbeat tempo rock kind of throwback really it would kind of fit in with a lot of albums you produced over the years what's the background on that song well that that one is kind of very simple song uh chris hayes and i wrote that song like 20 years ago wow and we just couldn't we couldn't get it right it just didn't work and we tried to record it and it didn't work and we tried to play it live and it didn't work don't know why so we just dropped it and then about four or five years ago when we were just rehearsing one day, we, we just fell into it and started jamming on it. And for some reason, it sounded great. Johnny wrote a real nice horn chart, and, and we just got it right. And uh, it's interesting because it's, it's, a, it's a simple song, and sometimes the simpler stuff is the hardest stuff to get right hmm. because it's all about, you know, it's not about the chords and the melody or any of that. It's more like the feel and the, and the tempo is becomes very, very important. So it's, um, it was, it was interesting, but, uh, it all kind of fell together for us. Yeah, when you started out, and I think this is the 40-year anniversary of your first album, 1980. That's unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. that's probably. Yeah, yeah. So Our first first record came out January of 1980. Wow, and that was right on the verge of MTV taking off. And um, I thought I saw a video 
of Her Love is Killing Me. Didn't I see Mr. Bochy in there somewhere? You did. (laughs) Bochy and Sutcliffe were in there. They star. Yeah, that's pretty good stuff. Sutcliffe interviewing him. It was shot on Bochy's birthday. Oh, was Yeah. And uh, they were were sweet to do it. They were playing golf. And it's funny because on the video, shows them both. And as it pulls back, I I got Bochy in the coat and tie i mean i got Sutton in the coat and tie doing the announcer bit and boach with the with the jersey on so it's it's Sut interviewing boach and then they're both lip sync the song but then the camera pulls back to reveal that they're both wearing shorts <laughs> like funny. we all are now right <laughs> yeah that's it yeah. um your music's always been genuine and true and authentic all those things and like we said it could be rhythm and blues it could be bluesy it could be funk, it could be rock, and a lot of times you've incorporated some good-natured wit and humor into the music. I mean, you're a regular guy in the storytelling, and the music is who you are, but I think that comes through a little bit in the in the song, Remind Me Why I Love You Again. Yeah, right, that's right. Yeah, yeah. you know, that's, um, and why not? You know, yeah. why not? The, the idea being that... Um, as long as it's true, it, it lives, you know, and that's, uh, that's, I think that's what helps us get away with the diversity on the record as well. Cause there, there is a, a sort of a personality that emerges somehow from it all that makes some kind of sense, you know, yeah, yeah. but, uh, yeah. Remind me why was, uh, was a, was a funny thing that we originally wrote as kind of a, kind of a late, much slower, lazy ass kind of bluesy thing. And then, um, it was James Hare, our guitar player, suggested that we uh, funk it up a little bit. The one song really had a country vibe to it, One of the Boys. Right. I'm not sure how much in your career, at least with the news, you dived into that genre, uh, but the lyrics playing with my friends till the music ends it gave me chills it's country man yeah it is and it's john mcphee playing pedal steel from clover from clover and yeah you, remember I w- yeah we i just sent the track down to him and he played and he killed it you know john mcphee's one of the great guitar players um, any any string instrument he plays fiddle guitar banjo uh pedal steel anything i mean the man is a genius and uh, and such a sweet guy, and um, yeah, the Doobie Brothers. Yeah, he spent I, most I, of and I, you know I grew up in with a lot of in Clover. We we, we played a lot of country music. Mm-hmm. And, sure, that's and I, true. I've always I'm not I'm not I'm not such a fan of modern country, if you know what I mean. But mm-hmm. I like the old stuff a lot, and so and interestingly, this song was um, there's a producer called Dave Cobb who's great record producer in Nashville does Sturgill Simpson and Shooter Jennings and a few people like that. And, um, uh, and Chris Stapleton and he, um, we had a meeting cause we have a mutual friend and he asked me to write a song for Willie Nelson, which I thought was, you know, pretty, pretty preposterous. I mean, wow. I love Willie Nelson, but yeah, I, to, to, to imagine that I could write a song for Willie would, I was flattered, but I said I didn't really think much of it, and then woke up kind of three weeks later one day with the song mostly formed in my head. Uh, got Johnny Colvin, we demoed it up uh, on the road, 
and then he didn't get the gig. Uh, mm. the, Dave didn't get the gig at, to, to produce Willie, so we were left with this song. And I'd written it as if, you know, Willie might have been Willie's story. And at that point, Bill Gibson, our drummer, said, you know, I think we should do it. I said, well, I read the Billy, it's country. He says, I don't, it sounds like us. I, you know, you sound good on it. And then I, I re-listened to it with that in mind. And I realized that the lyric that I'd written was, in fact, you know, my life story. And so, um, so we, we included it on the record. I sent it down to, to McPhee. He played steel on it and killed it. And, uh. And there you have it. What do you mean it was your life story? Um, well, that's my, you know, my dad played Dixieland music. Yeah. And uh, I met that the, the lyric is my story. Yeah. So I wrote it. I wrote it as if it was Willie's story. Wow. Thinking it may have been Willie's story, but it really, really was, really is my story. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, you had mentioned the Meniere's disease. There's no cause or cure as far as we know, but right. it's kind of an unfortunate thing, such a rare disorder and a bummer to step yep. back from what you love doing, from what we all love hearing, playing great music with great musicians. I mean, the travel, the guys, the camaraderie, the music, the gigs. Is there something you miss more than others? Yeah, that's that's it. That's what you miss. You miss the camaraderie. You miss the circus that is mm. the rock and roll tour, you know, mm. and and all the guys. And I feel bad. I mean, I've never been a great singer, but I, I was always reliable. You know, you got a lot of innings mm -hmm. out of me, you know, and now I just fall apart. So it, it feels bad that way. But we're... Um, you know the record's done well, and we're, we're we have a musical that we've produced that's um, um, that's very exciting. We we worked on it for almost ten years. My my next door neighbor's son-in-law Tyler Mitchell is the is the producer, and uh, he wrote it with his pal John Abrams, and they got me involved. And the three of us have been been at it now for about ten years, and uh, we put it up in San Diego for six weeks. Mm -hmm. It was a really a big smash hit. Got you know, great reviews and sold out everything. And and now we're waiting on a theater in, in New York, uh, about to bring it to New York when this COVID thing hits. So wow. uh, we're, we're biding our time and hoping uh, we can get it to Broadway when, uh, when this stuff, uh, when we get on the other side of this thing. Yeah, the heart of rock and roll musical. What, yeah. what is the extent of your involvement? Because you have had so many other things going on. Yeah, well, they, they, uh, well, originally, you know, they, they made me a, I mean, I had to be involved in order to look after the music. I wanted to make sure that it wasn't cringeworthy, if you know what I mean. Yeah. To make sure to, uh, but a quick, uh, our music director is a guy called Brian Yusufer, who's brilliant and did, uh, you know, Frozen and Kinky Boots and a bunch of shows on Broadway. He's a Tony winner and, and he, um, he gave every song a wonderful setting. So musically, I, I had, you know, very little to offer. I mean, certainly some suggestions and so on. But because I'm now a producer, uh, you know, they kind of have to listen to me. So I got involved in every aspect. And um, we've been writing and rewriting and, and forming the, you know, and, and it's, a, it's a living thing. And it's hugely collaborative, this this. Uh, these Broadway shows and uh, in a wonderful way because the um, the real thrill 
is is the Broadway people, the actors, and they're they're so smart and funny and 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 full of humility. Go figure. And so um, they're just a lot of fun to hang out with. And so we've uh, we've now the show is you know has, has grown and changed and and we have it pretty much where we want it now. And uh, hopefully we're going to be able to uh, get it to Broadway soon. <laughs> We'll be back with more Huey Lewis right after this short break. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Welcome back to Giant Splash. We're speaking with Huey Lewis. And Huey, how much of your upbringing in Mill Valley in those days when there was so much artistic talent throughout the Bay Area, but so much in Marin and San Francisco as well in the wake of the 60s. How much did that inspire you, uh, you know, toward what you've done since? I mean, we go back, Uncle Charlie's in Corte Madera, the Old Mill, the Throckmorton, all these places that were just rocking. And then everybody seemed to settle at the 2 a.m. club, which you used for the cover for sports, which is amazing. Goose at the Deuce, the guy who owned it. Yeah, uh, that's right. In fact, I might have had a drink or two there, and then I showed up later on my 21st birthday, and he got a little ticked off that I had a drink or two before. I don't think he gave me that birthday freebie. <laughs> but what was your inspiration, man? I mean, looking back on those bands you played in and what it all evolved to. Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, my parents both very creative. My mother was an artist. And my dad, although he was a radiologist, was actually a jazz drummer and a piano player. And so they were very supportive of, of that anyway. And that's why they lived in the community. That's why they had moved there. My dad was from Boston and so on. And, you know, uh, 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 it was a very artistic community. A Bohem- Marin County was originally kind of a bohemian community in the true sense of the word. There were, you know, the first Volkswagen's wor- mm. dealership was in Marin County. The first BMW dealership. The Mountain Home was a, was a Bavarian uh, 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 thing. The Buckeye was a Bavarian restaurant, and mm-hmm. there were, and you know, Marin Joe's in 1954 was Romano's restaurant there. So there were a lot of European influences and very artistic. And that that's that that's that's San Francisco. I mean, even the, there, of course, was sort of a San Francisco sound in the in the 60s, which is I guess is pretty much folk based for the most part, but. But even though, as things grew in the 70s and 80s, even though there was no San Francisco sound anymore, there was certainly a community of artists. And we all, through BAM magazine somewhat, and through different civic functions, we all sort of knew each other and hung out. Robin Williams was a close friend. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the comedians and the actors and the and the musicians. And we all sort of all knew each other. Because so, San Francisco is just a great town like that. Not only is it a great city, like a world-class city, but it's also a town in that respect, in that people really kind of know each other, you know, and it's, it's a small town artistically, and that's, uh, that serves us all well. Yeah. Hey, I'm also curious. Bruce Jenkins is at the Chronicle with us. Yeah. He wrote Goodbye 
about his dad, Gordon, who was a producer and arranger for Frank Sinatra. Great book, great yeah. book. It's a great, great book. Yeah. Now he's, written, he's written a new one, too, you know, about the, about the, I can't remember the title, darn it. I'm going to, I want to plug his new book. It's a, it's a Smokey Robinson tune. But anyway, yeah, Bruce, and how lucky is the Bay Area to have all these great journalists, you know? And then Scott Oster's great, and, and Bruce Jenkins is, is a treasure. I mean, he's just wonderful. People don't realize that, you know, if you live out here in Montana, you can really appreciate uh, San Francisco and sports journalism and is alive and well. I mean, San Francisco and, and you and, and everybody there and and – showman and you know there's probably <laughs> you read the green probably, sheet man that's awesome <laughs> there's probably you know the best sports journalist town in america i would say shop around was the title the shop book. around yeah. that's it yeah that's right yeah. well that's good and, yeah. and, and you know and you know we're going to talk about maze again uh, you know i was going to say because the journalism thing, and I remember Glenn Dickey. I'm going to dog Glenn Here Dickey a little bit now. <laughs> can I can I dog Glenn Dickey? Oh yeah. Because because you read where Mays they say Mays was was snarky a little bit. I even in the in the when he got picked as the number one ball player of all time in that review, they said well he he got snarky towards the end. And 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 I, I blame that on Glenn Dickey who was trying to be, you know, there was the age of Howard Cosell, the contrarian, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and Cosell was being, you know, that he'd be sort of you know, uh, attack journalism type stuff, and Ali would just play him. You know, Ali was was brilliant, and and Glenn Dickey tried to follow in those footsteps. And towards the end, he would dog Maze, and and Maze would try to respond in a nice way, and 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 it was just awful. And I I I, I maintain that's why Willie went to the Mets, man. I mean, he, hmm. he was literally driven out of there. And and as you pointed out earlier, the two guys that. Glenn Dickey Dog were Mays and Joe Montana. <laughs> yeah. Go figure. Well, guess what? I don't think anyone was more read during a certain time than Glenn Dickey, and nobody was heard more about than Cosell. I mean, you hate him, you love him. I mean, that was the gig. That's what it was all about with those guys. But smart, snarky, I, I think that could be mixed up with focus. If Mays was snarky, that's one man's opinion, but also his priority is playing ball and getting ready for the game and I've been in the business long enough to realize that you give these guys their space when space is necessary. But the game phase, the focus, the preparation, I mean, on a daily basis, it, it's really unbelievable baseball versus football or basketball. They're not everyday sports like baseball. But yeah, Mays, I interviewed you for the Willie Mays book that's coming out soon. And uh, when, when, when does the book come out? May 12th. Wow. Yeah. That's, his birthday's coming up. Yeah, he's 89, May 6th. What a fantastic guy. I mean, what I have so many great Willie Mays memories, and what a great, I mean, what a great player and what a great person Willie Mays is. I mean, what a treasure. And still there in San Francisco and still alive and well. How is he? Oh, he's great. He's doing well. I mean, he's really looking forward to this. He's still got the great passion. It seems every time I see him, he's got his game face. Um, whatever that day's assignment is, he's all in, and you don't see Hall of Famers at ballparks every day in other locales like you see Mays. You used to see McCovey, same thing, Willie, the gentleman you loved as well, McCovey.
And you tell the story of, of yeah, McCovey was wonderful too. And you tell the story about what, uh, tell to me again about because everybody, I, if everybody doesn't know this story, it's fantastic. When what is it, Raleigh Fingers and and Fosse? <laughs> you're playing what is it, the Mets and the and the A's, right? Yeah, the 1973 World Series, and Willie had already announced his retirement, and Joan Payson, the Mets owner, said, no, you can't retire. He was thinking of shutting it down a year earlier, and and uh, so many people look back at Willie in, in that World Series and say, you don't want to be Mays, you don't want to hang out too long, you know, quit before it gets too late, and all that stuff. You know, I talked to guys like Ricky Henderson, who played independent ball in his mid-40s, and all these players who just love to play, you know, it's it's not about you know appealing to others. It's about hey, if you love the game, you keep playing. Of course, you can you can understand that. Why would you? You're only forty years old. Why yeah. would you quit? You know, play as long as you can. Yeah, game two, seventy three series. Mays got the game winning hit. It was unbelievable. So he steps up to the plate, and the backdrop in Oakland wasn't great. It was tough on hitters, and if you came up during a certain time of the day with the sun and shadows as a hitter, it was hard to pick up the ball. So Willie, Willie goes up there and takes a pitch for a strike and backs off and tells Ray, Ray Fossey, he said, you know, um, he said, man, I can't see the ball. This is terrible. So Fossey, can, can you see it, Ray? Can, huh? can you see it, Ray? Yeah. yeah, I can't see it. Can you see it, Ray? So Fossey obviously calls for Raleigh Fingers to throw a fastball down the middle right in Willie's wheelhouse. I mean, he had that six tool. It wasn't just the five tools. He anticipated. He was smart. And sure enough, fastball down the middle, base hit to center, Turned out to be the game-winning hit, and that was his final hit in the big leagues. That's right. I heard Tom Seaver tell that story. It's such ah, a good story. Yeah. And it's so amazing. I mean, think of the things he did on the base paths, too. I mean, just unbelievable. He would torment pitchers because you knew he was going to go, and, and it would just drive him crazy. For this book, I talked with a bunch of former Dodgers and Yankees, all these wonderful guys from the 50s and 60s, and they all said, and, and, and Huey, I, I – I don't know if you could answer this question, but what what do you think his best tool is? I mean, his base running is as good as his power, which is good as his defense, which is good as his hitting. Yeah, it's, 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 hard his to, arm. it's hard to say. Yeah. It's hard to say, but it's all, but it's not hitting probably, which is amazing, right? I mean, with, even with all of his numbers, his hitting numbers, his fielding and his base running might be, might be more, you know, more better – might even be better. I mean, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. The guy was, and, 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 his, and his brain, and his head. Yeah. And his head. You know, and what a teammate. What a fantastic teammate. Like you said, he made everybody better. Now, yeah. And nowadays, these guys, a lot of guys are just out for themselves. They have to be. They get traded every couple of years. They don't, you know, they don't want to tell, what's this pitcher got? Well, I'm not going to tell you because next year I might wind up, uh, you know, on another team. Exactly. Or something, you know, so it's crazy. Well, I asked Willie. What tool are you most proud of? And it might surprise people. He hit 660 home runs, but he said his defense because it all swings. I, I believe that. Yeah. I totally believe that. But, I think his best tool was his brain. Okay. I mean, he, he just, he was so smart and he played, and he played, he played the game, you know, and I mean, every aspect of the game. What a, what a great player. Boy, and, we're and so can, lucky. I was yeah. so lucky to watch him. You could relate because he was an entertainer as well. I mean, he tried to entertain with the basket catch and the cap flying off. And the cap and everything. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And he showed up only four years after Jackie Robinson broke in. I mean, what a cultural icon who's with us. The story is unbelievable. He went through a lot of the same stuff that Jackie did. 
I mean, he goes from the all-black Birmingham Black Barons, and the next thing he knows, he's playing for the Trenton Giants right after signing with the New York Giants. And not only is he the only African-American on the team, he's the only African-American in the entire league. He went into these towns hearing the same stuff as Jackie Robinson. And, and, and DeRocher called him up, right, and said, you know, come on up. And he, and he at first deferred, didn't he? He said, you know, I can't <laughs> yeah. hit the curveball. Yeah, well, because he, his second year, he was in Minneapolis, and he was just loving it, and fans adored him there. He was hitting 477, and he was digging it. He was saying, okay, I'm, I'm going to be here all year. This is cool. But the Giants scuffling in late May, and Leo calls him up and says, we need you. He said, you need me. I'm fine here, man. <laughs> and then he goes up, he went 0 for 12, 1 for 25, hits that first home run off Lawrence Bond. He was crying at his locker. He said, I can't play this, man. It's too fast. Leo says, hey. You're our center fielder. You're here for defense. We'll hit for you. And that relaxed him, and he started going off at the plate. Isn't that great? Yeah. What a great story, man. That was such great stuff. Yeah. Such great stuff. Yep. Well, Huey, thank you so much. What a pleasure, man. This, this Not at all. Just fantastic. Not at all, John. Keep up the good work. We okay. love reading you. And good luck with everything, and congratulations on the new album. You bet. And thank you all for joining us on this special two-part Giants Splash. We appreciate Huey Lewis hanging out with us. And stay tuned for more upcoming Giants Splash podcasts from Henry Shulman and me. For now, take care and be safe. The Giants Splash is a production of the San Francisco Chronicle. Podcast producers are King Kaufman and Alan Johnson. The theme song, Batter Up, was written and performed by Lauren Gold and Ray Eastless. Support the Splash and all of our great journalism by signing up for a Chronicle membership at sfchronicle.com slash pod.